morning. It's a blessed, blessed morning, and if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We are going to be in Exodus chapter 5, 6, and 7. What? I know. Yeah, it's crazy talk. That's right. That we would go so fast. But if, if you're just joining us, we're going to um, we're in Exodus chapter 5. We have a couple ver- verses there at the very end of chapter 5. We get into chapter 6, and then we go a few verses into chapter 7 to kind of complete the thought that we're going to be doing here this morning. So if you'll join us here, let's go ahead and jump in here. Um, chapter 5 here, the last few verses. The last time we left Moses, he had just had an audience with Pharaoh um, did not seem to go very well. You know, prior to that, God shows Moses, hey, look, when you go to the children of Israel, here's the whole staff thing. You throw down the staff, it turns into a serpent. You'll be able to do that. The hand in your cloak and bring it out, it's leprous, and then you put it back in and it's renewed again. And then you're going to go to uh, the, the Nile River, grab some water, and pour it out. It's going to turn to blood. And then they're going to know, the children of Israel, that I have sent you to be the deliverer of Israel to be able to bring the people out of bondage to Egypt into the promised land. And so Moses does that and things go very well and the people are really excited about them. And then God sends them to Pharaoh to let my people go. And, and so he goes before Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Well, dude, you're going to get to know Yahweh. You know, and he says, I'm not going to let him go. As a matter of fact, if you have all this idle time to go and worship your God, Yahweh, out in the wilderness, then maybe I need to put a little bit more uh, work into your lives. And so he says, from now on, you are still to make the same quota of bricks, but guess what? We're not going to provide this straw. You're going to have to do that on your own, which again makes the work twice as hard. And so now the people are going to be under this labor, and they have been doing this, and now they're mad at Moses. And this is kind of where we left off last time. And I had mentioned that, you know, sometimes God gives you a plan, and as you do the plan, at first you're going, this is great. And then you hit a place where crisis hits, and now you're no longer popular in front of the people, or you don't like the trials and tribulations you're going through, and you just kind of shake your head, and you go to God and say, i got to tell you something, not liking the plan, okay? And so this is kind of where we leave off here, is that Moses is probably at that place going, yeah, not really liking the plans. But this happens all the time when you start to do things God's way. A lot of times, things get worse or harder. Trials come. And you begin to ask, what is going on? You know, what is going on? It could be that, you know, you've been praying for that special somebody for all these years. God brings him or her into your life. You get married, and six months later, you find out that person has cancer. And six months later, they died. Lord, what is that? all about you know you're being the best employee that you can you find out something that's going wrong there with your company you bring it to the attention of your supervisor and now they label you as a troublemaker next thing you know they're trying to find a way to fire you lord what, what's going on father i've i've uh, i've been walking with you all this time have honored you in my marriage raise godly offspring only to see some of those kids go wayward after they leave the home. Lord, what 
is going on. See, the, the, the mistake that we make is that we're in the midst of that, going, Lord, not liking the plan, Lord, what is going on, is that we think that that's the way it's always going to remain from then on out. As opposed to knowing that God is a God that changes things. God is a God who allows certain things. And through it all, it is always to show two things. One, something in us. And then something about his grace and mercy and love. And that he is God. And that he is in charge. And those things will become apparent so long as you keep your eyes on the Lord and continue to do the plan that God has put in front of you. This happens all the time, but that mistake that we make is thinking that the place that we're in is going to continue to be that. It's not the final outcome, and we need to continue to wait on the Lord. And so here in verse 21 of chapter 5, it says, And they said to them, Let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So this is right before... Moses goes before the Lord. This is his last interaction with the people. They're looking at him. And so this is the first time we actually have people as a collective group use the name Yahweh. And when they do, it's in judgment towards Moses. Again, Lord not liking the plan. You know, at first I was the hero coming in here. Everything's great. Now I'm coming back to him after seeing Pharaoh. And Pharaoh explained to him what they now have to do. And now they're giving me the old stink eye. Moses. May Yahweh look on you and judge. Because you have made us a stench in the sight of Pharaoh, it says. And in the sight of his servants. To put a sword in their hand to kill us. In other words... Because of you, Moses, we're probably going to be put to death by Pharaoh's servant because there's no way they're going to be able to meet the quota. They're never going to be able to meet that quota. So Moses becomes public enemy number one. He's being rejected by both Pharaoh and the Egyptians as well as his own people, the Israelites. Israel's rebellion and opposition to Moses is the beginning of a repeated pattern that we see time and time again with God's people and the prophets that God sends to them. This is one of the reasons why Stephen, the very first Christian martyr, told the Sanhedrin before they stoned him. He said this, he said in Acts 7.52, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did the fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Stephen's saying, look at your history. You have always persecuted and you have always murdered the prophets. The prophets are the spokespeople of God. He's, they're the ones that God sends to be a spokesperson for God to be able to say, hey, you're not quite doing this right. Hey, you've kind of deviated from worshiping the only one true God with your idols and the way that you're treating your fellow man. And so God sends the prophets to say, I love you. Let's get back into right relationship with me. And they would say no, and they would persecute him. We want to do our own thing. And this is where it begins right here With Moses. This is the first right here of the people turning on the prophet of God. It begins right here with Moses and will continue on. 
as we go through this Exodus account, we're going to see it time and time again. Moses is the best. We hate Moses. Moses is glorious. Oh, he stinks. I mean, it's like, boom, boom. There's nothing in between. And we see a beginning right here. A few things to understand here when it comes to obeying the Lord's calling is that just because God has given you a message to preach, how people respond to it is not up to you, okay? That does not belong to you. Um, Satan always wants to come alongside of what it is that you've said to discourage people and what it is that they've just heard. Just know that. But you're not responsible for the result. You are responsible to do what it is that God has said to do or what God has told you to speak. And so long as it's done in love, then you you can back off and just say, okay, I've done what God said to do, but the results don't belong to me. And I know Satan's going to want to come alongside and and try and change a little bit of what I said and how they heard it or whatever, but you're not responsible for that. You're not responsible for that. And so people often rebel and get angry when they're in pain. And so I'm going to cut the Israelites here a little slack. They're, They're going through a very difficult time. And we've all heard this expression before. Hurt people hurt people. And so when somebody is saying something that's hurtful to you, you can maybe back off a little bit. Lord, give me wisdom. Give me discernment. Is what they're saying actually true? Are they saying that out of the own hurt that they have? And and they're so filled of pain that all they can do now is hurt other people. You know. And so we need to look at that and understand that when someone's in pain and they're angry, they're going to say things that are probably going to be hurtful. But doesn't necessarily mean that that was from the Lord by any stretch of the imagination. And so remember that all results belong to God. We just need to be uh, uh, obedient to what it is that God has called us to do. So Moses now gets the blame for the hardship laid upon the people. And and so, uh, but Moses does what he is supposed to do. He stops, okay? He stops what he is doing. He goes to God and he prays. And that's not what he did the last time when he was rejected by the people. The last time he was rejected by the people was in chapter 2, verse 15, after he kills the Egyptian and then goes to uh, the people. They said, are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian uh, yesterday? And it's kind of like, oh, no. And so they rejected him as being the guy that's going to deliver him out of Egypt. So what did he do? He ran away. He ran to Midian. But now he goes to God. And that's exactly what you're supposed to do. He goes to God. And, and even though as we read this, we're probably going to go, yeah, it doesn't seem like the right attitude how he went to God. Just so you know, if you go to God, and it might not be the right attitude, at least you went to God. And we're going to see the Lord not rebuke Moses with his accusations here. But look what it says in verse 22. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is that you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Wow. You know, awesome. You went to the Lord. I'm going to give you kudos for that. You went to the Lord. But maybe, just maybe, you can curb the attitude a bit. Maybe, just maybe, you should count to like maybe 100 before you speak, all right? 
But look how often he uses the word you. Lord, why have you brought trouble to this people? Why is it you have sent me? Neither have you delivered your people. You, you, you. Basically, this is your fault. All right. Look what it says in verse 1 here of chapter 6. Then the Lord angrily rebuked Moses. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. He doesn't address at all the accusatory tone that Moses has, the way that Moses is very much whining and complaining to God. He doesn't address that at all. He is very patient with Moses. Moses is is very much brand new in this new relationship that he is supposed to have with God. He is learning on the job here of what it is to be a prophet called by God and and, and how he is supposed to deliver things and and how he is supposed to now react to things. And and he's learning and God is being very patient with him. And as I go through this, it reminds me of how we need to be patient with one another. You know, if you are just having a bad day and you're coming in here and you're barking at people or whatever it is, we want to come alongside. We want to pray with you and everything else, but we do need to be patient with you and understand that everybody can have a bad day, you know, and understand that I I really don't know uh, this person. They've been coming for about a month or two, I think. So we don't know their background. We don't really know anything. And so let's just be kind and let's walk with them and let's not be so quick to nitpick every little thing that isn't quite godly you know because God himself is working with Moses here you know and it's obvious his accusatory tone and blaming God for everything and yet God takes it and here's the thing you can do that with God he has big enough shoulders he can carry the weight of whatever you're going through and even your poor attitude Because i got to tell you something, I have often moaned to God. And and, and one of the things that I love about Habakkuk is that Habakkuk will will complain about everything, and then he says, but I'm going to listen for how you're going to rebuke me. He goes, I know my attitude isn't right, and yet I will, you know, and so I'll, I'll, I'll stand here and I'll wait to see how you will correct my thinking of how I see things. That is, a, that is a beautiful prayer. That is an absolutely amazing prayer of kind of going, I know I feel like this right now, so blah, 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 blah. I do feel better, and I know it was wrong, and I will wait to hear from you of, of, of why my attitude is so poor or, or why I'm not seeing things correctly. God is big enough for that. And so uh, I, I would say just go and be honest because as you're holding it in and you're trying to be so prim and proper with God and so mature, Lord, thank you for all these trials I'm going through right now. I've got my eyes on you. It's not bothering me a bit. Liar face. You cannot fool the Lord. He knows how you're feeling. So just express it. Say, Lord, I know this isn't right, but I am so discouraged right now. Father, I know this isn't right, but boom, 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 boom. Father, I know this is right, but I really expected you to do this. I really wasn't expecting that. Help me to understand this because, frankly, I'm not liking the plan. I'm ticked. I'm upset. God knows that. And and it's a safe place to do that. It's a safe place to do that. Um, 
And so God continues on here. And he says, for with a strong hand, so the Lord said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out. That's speaking of Pharaoh. That with a strong hand, he will let them go. Pharaoh will. And with a strong hand, he, Pharaoh, will drive them out of his land. Um, God is revealing to Moses here. The reasoning that um, he knew that Pharaoh wasn't going to let him go, he knew the reasoning why Pharaoh would react the way that he did. He knew all this was going to happen, and but he wanted to give Pharaoh an opportunity to do what? Repent and know who Yahweh is, because you introduced me as the God of the Hebrews. And he could have reacted and saying, hmm, I've never heard of this God before. Can you explain to me more about who Yahweh is? You know, and, and when he says, this is what you need to do, that he could have had the opportunity to say, man, I want to know more about this God. But, but he does not do that. And God could have done something as, as well. At the moment that he spoke to, to Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, no, God could have just, you know, done a quick release. He could have frozen all of Pharaoh's people. And all the people could have been looking at him. Let's get our stuff. Let's go out. They're all in a freeze frame. God could have done anything. And I'm just suggesting, Lord, that would have been cool. I'm just saying. But you have your ways. I understand. And they're much better than mine. But I'm like thinking there could have been a quick release here. But, But God has a bigger plan that is unfolding and it's going to bring him even more glory. And it's going to cause his people to understand what long-suffering is and what it is to wait upon the Lord. And when you do that, there's a greater glory that is going to come to be able to show God who he is. It's one of the reasons why, even though the promise was given to Abraham, another 400 years had to happen. Why? Because it was just Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac. Go take over the land. Well, there's only three of us. It's kind of a big area. The the land's yours. Go ahead and take it. Three of them, you know. And so, again, God had to develop, and all of a sudden, there's 12. And now there's 12 tribes, and they go to Egypt, and there's 70 of them. Well, he could have said, just take over the land with the 70, and, okay, that's still only 70. And what happens over the next 400 years? Well, he told Abraham, because the sin of the Amorites have not reached its height yet. And so God is going to continue to reach out to the people in that land. But there'll come a time when it's a a time of of where now God is going to have to act. Now God is going to have to judge, okay? Because the people in that land have gotten to a place of no return, and they will never turn their hearts to me. And so now you can go in. When is that going to be? 400 years later. And guess what? A couple million people now in Egypt that are the Israelites, that now Moses is going to lead into the promised land. Now they can take the land, but it took 400 years. And with a strong hand, he will let them go. That speaks of Pharaoh. Um, and it's interesting because with a strong hand speaking of Pharaoh, the Lord himself is going to speak of his strong hand, his strong arm that he's going to use. And it's, and it's directly in relation to Pharaoh thinking he is strong, Okay. Um, In verse 2, it says, And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. Again, if you're new here, anytime you see the word Lord there, and it is capitalized, L-O-R-D, all those letters capitalized, it speaks of the personal name of God, Yahweh. Okay? 
Um, And I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty. And by my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I remembered my covenant that which he spoke to Abraham and spoke again to Isaac and then to Jacob. Um, And so I am Yahweh to remind Moses of their first encounter at the burning bush when he told Moses, I am who I am. Reminding Moses of the great name of God, he reminds him that he is a covenant-making God, but he's also a covenant-fulfilling God. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Yahweh, I was not known to them. What does that mean? We know that the name Yahweh is used 160 times in Genesis. But he has only known them, uh, known him as Yahweh in the way of being a covenant-making God. But none of the patriarchs were able to see Yahweh and known him as Yahweh as a covenant-fulfilling God. And that is who the Israelites and Moses and Aaron are going to know God as being a covenant-fulfilling God. Knows him as El Shaddai, Almighty God. They were able to see that. Abram knew God Almighty in having a son at 100 years of age. We know that Jacob knew God Almighty in multiplying his sons in the 12 tribes, but they don't know him as a covenant-fulfilling God. And that is one of the things that they are going to get to know him. He says, I have remembered my covenant. God has remembered his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so, Moses, can you remember God? Can you remember your God and all that he has done? You keep thinking of all the things he hasn't done yet. But don't you remember the burning bush? Him explaining who he is? You need to remember your God. God has remembered his covenant. Now you need to remember your God. Verse 6 says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am Yahweh. Notice how many times we're going to read, I will, that God is going to do this. I am Yahweh. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Who's going to do that? God is going to do that. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am Yahweh, your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am Yahweh. That is who he is. We see seven I wills here. And there's seven I wills of redemption is what they are. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great judgments. Much like Pharaoh said that he has the outstretched arm. He has the outstretched hand. It is through his strength. It's God's strength. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will bring you into the land. I will give you as a heritage. First, I will that God speaks of here is I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. This speaks of God's grace. 
The Israelites do not deserve to be brought out of Egypt, which represents the world. The world here is one that has authority and has a power and all that. The Israelites, God is the one that's going to bring them out from under the burdens of the world. And we see this as a picture of Christ. We're a sinner in need of redemption as well. Today, people carry the burden of what? Sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The things of this world, our worldliness is a burden that we carry. The sin of the world is a burden that we carry. And it is God himself and it is only God that can deliver us from the burden of sin. And he does it through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he did that on the cross. And for anyone that puts their faith in Jesus and dying on the cross for the sin of mankind, you will be delivered from sin of this world. In being in bondage, you can now have victory over sin. It no longer makes you, it no longer is a master to you. Jesus is your master. In Matthew 11, verse 28, Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The burden of this world is a taskmaster, and will always take from you more than it will ever give. And the longer you're under it, the less it gives, and the more it takes. Not so our Lord and Savior. His burden is light, because he's the one that leads the way. He's the one that leads the way. And so I will rescue you from their bondage. Again, Israel, um, living in a life of slavery, horrible affliction and misery. This speaks of the world. The world is not happy because they are a slave to sin. God wants to remove that. To rescue means that you cannot save yourself. If you need to be rescued, that means you need a deliverer. That means you need what? A savior. A savior. And Jesus is that savior. In John 8, 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Shall make you free. And they answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. What? (laughs) You're in bondage the moment you said those words because Rome... You, you know, Rome occupies your land and everything that you do. And have you already forgotten when you're in bondage to the Babylonians? And do you realize that you were born out of bondage with Egypt? How can you say that you've never been in bondage? It's, it's, it's amazing. Um, and so how can you say we will be made free? And Jesus answered, most surely I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. So you need to become a son. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And it's through the son of the father, Jesus, that you're made free from the bondage of sin. And now you can come and dwell into the household of God as sons and daughters. We have burdens, sins that only Christ himself can take away, and so we need to be rescued as well. He goes on, he says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. To redeem means to purchase. It means to set free, to buy back. 
God is going to purchase the Israelites with his power and his authority through judgments and plagues. But it's interesting that they don't actually get set free until the 10th plague, the Passover. The Passover. The Passover lamb. Innocent blood of a lamb atoning in order for them to be released from bondage. And it's the same today. We're released from the bondage of sin by the atoning blood of the Passover lamb who is Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought at a price. It was costly to God to purchase us. Right there, you were bought at a price. Therefore, because it has cost God so much to purchase us, therefore, glorify God in your body, in your spirit, which are God's. How can we not? With all that God has paid in order to buy us back, how can we not live for him? How can we not submit to him? How can we not be obedient to him? How? Well, because I feel... Do you understand you were bought at a very, very costly price that only God himself could pay? And you know what it was with? 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. Jesus had to die had to live the perfect human life under human conditions. And he did that flawlessly and then voluntarily went up to be crucified, to be scourged beforehand, beaten, whipped, beaten, crown of thorns placed. And then he was crucified and hung up there for six hours until he said the words to Telestai, it is finished. What was needed to buy back humanity has now been accomplished. How could we not live for him? How could we not pray for other people? How could we not tell other people of this amazing, amazing love of God towards us? How could we not? And then he says, I will take you as my people. Not only does he redeem us, he redeems us for a reason, so we could be his sons and daughters. That we could have this amazing relationship. In John 1, 12, it says, But as many received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in his name. In 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You know, it's interesting to me of those who are brought up in a a Christian home that reject Christ. Those who are brought up in some sort of Christian family and they reject Christ. Well, Dave, you talk about the mercies of God. You talk about how awesome God is. But I was raised in a household, and they were hypocrites. They told me about the love of God, but they didn't really show it. Okay, so that's why I rejected. So I want nothing to do with that God. Let me ask you a question. If I was to come up here and take the keyboards right there, and I start playing 
Beethoven. And I'm here to tell you, it would be horrible. (laughs) Whose fault is that? Is it Beethoven's? Or is it mine? So if I go up there and I start playing Beethoven on there and it's horrible, do you hate Beethoven? And all the songs that he created and stuff like that? Or are you kind of going, Dave, I don't think that's your gift. (laughs) Stop playing Beethoven. Why would I get mad at Beethoven? Don't be mad at Christ. Don't be mad at God the Father. Because the people who are professing maybe Christ and God the Father are not perfect. And they don't do a real good job of representing of who God is. Okay, don't blame God for that. We're all works in progress. Okay, that isn't God's fault. And it's not Christ's fault. We have to take ownership of that. And when you go and apologize for someone saying, hey, look, I'm still trying to work out my own salvation. I know this is the truth over here. I know that I haven't represented it perfectly, but it is the truth. Please seek him. Don't seek me. Don't seek my relationship that I have with the Lord because I'm still growing as well. And I'm still going to mess up and I'll get angry from time to time and do stupid things. And then I go to the Lord and ask forgiveness and I'm forgiven. But don't expect me to be perfect. Please pray for me instead. But I'm here to point you to the one person that can save you. That's Jesus. I cannot. And I know I'm not the perfect representative. Does that make sense? Okay. So young people. Yes, your parents are hypocrites. (laughs) Young people. Yes, your parents, your grandparents, whoever it is. They're hypocrites. Young people. Your pastor is a hypocrite. I'm just doing the best I can as I grow in the Lord. And even I am human and make mistakes and will continue to do that. But I do believe that I'm getting closer to the Lord and reflecting his glory more and more the longer I walk and surrender to him. And just so you know, the moment I get it down, I'll be gone. So if the Lord takes me tomorrow, just know between now and tomorrow, I finally got it. Okay? I finally got it. Because God's word tells us that. Be confident of this very thing that he who began in the work will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. And the day of Christ Jesus Lord is the moment you die. The moment you die is the moment you're the most holiest you've ever been. God is completing all sorts of things rapidly right before you go. Problem is, nobody else is going to be able to see it. That's the only problem. Okay. Philippians 4, I will be your God. He's going to be our guide. He is going to be the one that provides for us, uh, protects us, leads us. In Philippians 4.19, and may God supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 6.16, and what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. He says, I will bring you to your land or to the land. Now is God going to bring them out of bondage. He's going to bring them a place of promise. And that is the promised land. And God does that with us as well. Hey, look, I'm here to take you out of the, uh, uh, the world. I'm here to take you out of the sin of bondage. I've done that through Christ. But guess what? I'll eventually take you out of this land to your promised land, which is what? Heaven. 
heaven. John 14, 1 through 4, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Right there, he promises us heaven. That is our promised land. As believers in Christ Jesus, our promised land is heaven. And then we are given a heritage, meaning, uh, meaning this, I give it to you as a heritage, meaning for the people of Israel, as I bring in the promised land, your heritage is your descendants will also inherit this as well. They have a great inheritance in the promised land there. And it's the same thing with us, that even though we're promised heaven, we also have a heritage incorruptible, okay, which is all the rewards you're going to get, which is also going to be uh, what God tells us that we're going to be priests and kings in the millennial kingdom. What does that entail, you know? How are we going to be serving the Lord during the thousand-year reign of Christ here? I have no idea. It's so exciting to think about, though. And depending on your faithfulness and what God has given you here on earth depends on what you're going to receive in heaven in the way of rewards and responsibilities in the new kingdom to come. And it's very, very exciting to to think about. You know, it's very exciting. I, I don't know if we're all going to be over a sector of God's kingdom, you know. I'm over sector 12. You're over sector 37. You're in charge of this part of the universe. I mean, I have no idea. You'll be zapping down here, you know, serving the Lord, going back up to your place in heaven. And I mean, it's going to be wild. It's going to be absolutely wild. But the reason why more people in that kingdom are going to have more responsibility is because they are very, very responsible and faithful with what God's given them here on earth. And don't think that a minister, that someone who's preaching the gospel is the one that is going to get the most rewards and most responsibility. That Because he has a bigger church or you think of a Billy Graham or Franklin Graham. No, 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 no. If you're faithful in little things, you can be faithful much. And somebody who has uh, been born in another part of the world that's part of a village that only has like 100 people, but they come to know Christ, and during their 40-year lifespan, because it's, it's, it's lesser there for whatever reason, they are faithful to the Lord, and 20 to 30 people come to know the Lord? Great is their reward going to be in heaven. Guaranteed. Those of you who serve in, uh, with, with the babies and the toddlers and Sunday schools, great is your reward in heaven. Taking care of them so their parents can be here and hear the word of God. That is what you were called to do, and you're doing it faithfully. Anybody who's being faithful with what God has called them to do, great is their reward in heaven. And don't look through it with man's eyes. Oh, look at how much she is you know, impacting uh, uh, God's kingdom. Look how much he is impacting God's. Oh, great must be their reward. Yet this person, what about that person? That person is in janitorial services and they go in after that company, you know, leaves and it's a huge building, you know, 10 stories high or whatever. And they go through emptying the trash and yet that person sees the nameplate of every person and stops for 30 seconds and prays for that person as they go through that building. We don't know about it, but great is their reward going to be in heaven. There's so many things going on. We have no clue. But on the other side of heaven, we're going to see it all. We're going to see it all. 
And so understand Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of glory. When you receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you as a guarantee, as a sealed. You've been sealed now, okay? And a sealed back in the Roman days is, has everything to do with uh, candle wax being put on this and the, and the uh, Caesar or the king you know, uses his ring to seal it to make sure as it's shipped off, it gets to him. Nobody else is able to take that package until he shows up, shows the signet ring. It's been sealed for him. That's you. You've been sealed to be delivered to heaven. So when you die, Satan can't come and get you. You don't have the seal of a demon in your life. You have the seal of the Holy Spirit. And when you die, absent from the body, present with the Lord, you will make it to your destination. It is guaranteed, it says here. And nothing can thwart that. In 1 Peter 1.3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to the living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. No one is going to be able to take away that heritage that you have. No one. It is kept by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. These seven I wills is a promise to Israel. It's a promise of redemption as well. Okay, um, it's interesting that these are couched by I am Yahweh in verse 2 and in verse 8. Satan also has his own I wills. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 14. Chapter 14 here of Isaiah. Verse 12, it's always good to know where these verses are. The other place that speaks of Satan is in Ezekiel. And if you just double 14 to 28, that's how you know where that reference is. Okay, so I always double it. Isaiah 14, verse 12 says, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. No, you won't. That's pride. And what did that bring you? Right here. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit, because he will be thrown into the Abuso for a thousand years. Okay? And those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble? Who shook kingdoms? When we see Satan completely powerless, we're all going to go, that's the guy? That, that's the guy right there? He's going to look a lot to us like Barney Five. Okay? That, that's that's kind of how he's going to look. All right? And, I'm, you know, and, and you're going to see him someday. You're going to see him someday. And I, I just can't help but think, Lord, just give me five minutes with him. Please, just five minutes. In my glorified body. <laughs> Not in this body. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. God didn't 
you know, didn't raise a fool here in that sense. I understand in my resurrected glorified body. Oh, yeah, I want to talk to him. So Satan has five I wills, and this is his future. He's going to be thrown in the pit. He's going to be thrown in the pit. So verse 9, going back here to Exodus 6, verse 9 says, So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses. So he just explained all the things that God is going to do. Be excited. God's still in this. He hasn't changed. He has just brought me back to you to say, don't be discouraged. He's going to do all these things. But they did not listen to Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And Moses must be thinking, okay, Lord's still not liking the plan. Okay. But Moses is going to learn. You're going to speak to the children of Israel regardless of how they respond to you. And it goes on. And it says in verse 10, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of the land. You know he's going, Okay, didn't go well the last time I spoke to Pharaoh. Didn't go well when I then spoke to the children of Israel. And then I spoke to you. You told me to go back to the children of Israel. I did. Didn't go well. And now you're asking me to go back to Pharaoh. And so, verse 12. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not listened to me. And how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So again, Moses is going to have to learn to walk in the promises of God and not to look at his present circumstances. We're to walk by faith, not by sight. Moses needs to learn to be obedient, integrity, and doing what God has said to do, even though it's not bringing about the immediate results that he would like. Now, it's at this point that the narrative is kind of interrupted by this parenthetical section in verses 14 through 27. This is going to deal with the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. This is to show exactly where Moses and Aaron fit in the chronology, the genealogical history of the Exodus story. This is also going to show specifically these two men were chosen by Yahweh to present the charge to Pharaoh to let God's people go. So in verse 14, it says, these are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, Carmi, these are the families of Reuben. So we're going to start here. This genealogy is not supposed to be complete. It is only to show how Moses and Aaron fit in the chronology of things. And so we're going to start going down the list until we come to the one son that is responsible for his uh, descendants of producing Moses and Aaron. Okay, so we go to the first son. Although the firstborn son, his children don't lead to Moses or Aaron. So let's go to the second one, verse 15. These are the sons of Simeon, who were Jamul, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, Shaul, the son of the Canaanite woman. These are the families of Simeon. Also don't lead to Moses or Aaron. So let's go to the next one. These are the names of the sons of Levi, according to their generations, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, and the years of the life of Levi were 137. So this narration 
ends as far as this son of Jacob is concerned because this is where the Levites come from and Moses and Aaron come from the tribe of Levi. Levi has three sons, Gershon, Kohath, Merari. Levi died at 137 years of age. Not everybody age is going to be given when they died, only those significant to this genealogy. Verse 17, the sons of Gershon, because Gershon was one of the sons of Levi, okay? The sons of Gershon were Libni and Shimi, according to their families. Now, Gershom is mentioned because of the significance of his offspring, Libni and Shimi. They become the Libnites and the Shemites, um, and they have specific duties uh, as Levitical priests uh, inside the tabernacle. So they're mentioned. Verse 18, the sons of Kohath were Amram. Who's that? Father of Moses. That's why he's being mentioned. The sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, Uzeel. And the years of life of Kohath were 133. Again, from Kohath comes Amram, the father of Moses. And Kohath was 133 years old when he died. Now the sons of Merari. Now what do we care about them? Sons of Merari were Mali and Mushai. These are the families of Levi. Why are they mentioned? More offspring for the tribe of Levi. That's why. And so, um, so again, now we circle back to Amram. Now Amram, verse 20, took for himself Jochebed, his father's sister, as wife. She bore him Aaron and Moses, and the years of life of Amram were 137. So we circle back. Amram marries his aunt, okay, Jochebed, his father's sister. Now the name Amram, Amram, means exalted people. Jochebed, the Hebrew word is actually Yokeved, and it means Yahweh is glory, okay? Aaron is the Hebrew word Ahron, and it means light or light bringer. Okay, and Moses, we already know, is Moshi, and it means drawn out because he was drawn out of the Nile River. Well, Amram was 137 years old when he died. Now, we're given the sons of Izhar, were Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. Sons of Izhar is mentioned because Korah plays a very significant role in Numbers chapter 16. It's known as the rebellion of Korah, not the best history to have in your lineage, okay? And then verse 22, and the sons of Uzeel were Mishael, Isaphan, and Zithri. The sons of Uzeel are mentioned because they play a significant role in the judgment of Aaron's sons in Leviticus chapter 10. In Exodus 6.23, it says, and Aaron took to himself uh, Elisheba, uh, daughter of, of Aminadab, the sister of Nashon as wife, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Now, Aaron now takes a wife, okay, Elisheba, the daughter of Aminadab. Now, in Numbers 2, verse 3, we're told that Aminadab is from the tribe of Judah. So Aaron from the tribe of Levi marries a daughter from the tribe of Judah. This is to show how nationality kind of works and, and origin, how it comes from the father. So since Aaron is the father of the offsprings of the Levites and not the Judahites, Okay, so as they marry, it's because Aaron is a Levite that their offspring is going to be Levites. Okay, so that origin is traced back to the father of what tribe they are from. Elisheba is Elisheba, 
And it means God is, uh, God is an oath by which one swears or the oath of God. It's actually um, uh, the English word for Elizabeth. That's where Elizabeth actually comes from is Elishiva. Okay. Nadab and Abihu are mentioned because they become priests later on only to be killed by God because they're offering profane fire before the Lord. Leviticus chapter 10. Eleazar becomes a high priest after Aaron dies. Numbers 20 verse 25. And so again, these are why some of these names are being mentioned here. In verse 24, and the sons of Korah were Asir, Elkanah, Abiasaph, and these are the families of the Korahites. Again, Korah is mentioned because of the rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. Then you have Eleazar, Aaron's son, mentioned in verse 25, took for himself one of the daughters of Petul as wife, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's house of the Levites according to their family. So Eleazar is mentioned here because his son Phineas becomes the high priest by the time that the book of Judges is being written. Okay, he is now the high priest um, as, as, as Joshua has now been in the land. They conquered the land and now judges are being raised up. Phineas is the high priest at that time. And then we have the conclusion of the matter in verse 26 and 27. These are the same Aaron and Moses to which the Lord said, bring out of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt according to their armies. And these are the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring out the children of Israel from Egypt. These are the same Moses and Aaron. This whole little interruption of this parenthetical is to make clear that the Moses and Aaron that we're talking about here is this Moses and Aaron with this genealogy. Because you know with all the people there in, in Israel, the Israelites, I should say, that are there in Egypt, there's plenty of other guys named Aaron. Plenty of other guys named Moses. There's probably a pair of brothers that are named Moses and Aaron. But they don't come from this lineage, so maybe it's speaking of that Moses. No, no, no. We want to make this very clear that this Moses, this Aaron comes from this lineage that we know who you're talking about here, that who is the deliverer of Egypt. And that is Moses, whose brother is Aaron, whose father is Amram, and it comes from this line. That's why this has been spoken of here. It's very, very important, um, just like it is with us, that we need to be reminded here that they had a specific ministry that was given to them by God. And I think the same thing is with all of us. When you help out with the clean team, that's a ministry. When you help out with Sunday school, that's a ministry. When you step up and help out here as, as we um, do our program here for, for the kids, you know, uh, at our Bible camp that we're going to do, um, and I'm drawing a blank, what's that called? VBS, thank you. Vacation Bible School, it's that one, just so you know. When you, when you, uh, when you volunteer for that, that is a ministry. That is a calling, and so in Jeremiah 1.4, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. God knew you before you were born. You have also been sanctified, and you have also been formed in the womb, and God knew you beforehand, and he knew what ministry he was calling you to. He knew that right away. God's providence, his calling. Um, in, in Philippians 1.6, again, I already mentioned this, but being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so now, verses 28 and 29, 
that picks up where 13 left off. And so we're given a, uh, just a reminder of verse 13 again. In verse 28, it says, And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, that the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I am the Lord. Speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I am uncircumcised lips, and how shall Pharaoh heed me? Okay, and then again, verse 1 of chapter 7. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, shall be your prophet. A prophet is a mouthpiece for God, is a spokesman for God. And so guess what? Just like a prophet hears from God and then speaks to the people, Aaron is going to hear from you, Moses, and speak to Pharaoh, and speak to Pharaoh. And just like that, he, that to Pharaoh, that Aaron is going to be a prophet to Moses, and that's why he's going to be as God to Pharaoh, okay, is because of that. Uh, just like a prophet is a spokesperson for God, so Aaron is going to be a spokesperson for Moses, and you shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of the land, and what you're going to tell him is to send Israel out of the land. Now, Pharaoh is the one that we read time and time again, is the one who sends the Israelites out of the land. I have all these scriptures up here, Exodus 3.20, 7.14, verse 16 as well, chapter 8, verse 8, as well as verse 25, chapter 9, verse 28, and so on and so forth. But we also read that Yahweh is the one that brings the Israelites out of the land. Exodus 6.6, 6, uh, as well as chapter 12, verse 17, verse 14, uh, 42, and for, verse 51, as well as chapter 13, verse 3 and 9, and, and, and 14 and 16, and chapter 4, and it goes on. There's even more. I, I just didn't have the bandwidth in my mind to just keep writing all those verses down. Um, many more. So who's responsible for sending the Israel out of the land? Both are. Okay, both are two sides of the same coin. But understand who's in total control. Yahweh is using Pharaoh to send them out of the land. And so sometimes he said Pharaoh sends them out of the land. Sometimes he says he's the one that sends them out of the land. It is two sides of the same coin. Verse 3, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Hasn't done it yet. And we'll get more into that. Okay. Um, And multiplied my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And so, but Pharaoh will not heed you. Here he knows, Pharaoh's going to have a hard heart, okay? So that I may lay my hand on Egypt, bring my armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgment. Pharaoh will refuse to let the people go. For what reason that God allows this to happen? By what reason? Verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. When I stretch out my hand on Egypt, bring out the children of Israel from among them. This is how the Egyptians will know, just like when Pharaoh, in his cocky little attitude, says, Who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? Well, you are going to find out. God first gives you an opportunity, introduces himself to you by Moses. You choose not to want to know anything about him. Instead, you want to claim that you're greater than him. And so because of that, God's judgments are going to come to show his name is great. And then Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded them, so they did. And then Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. And so we're going to end right there. 